You know, so many people, when they face hardship and difficulty, their first response is, why is this happening? Why does God allow this? Why didn't God stop it? In eternity, we're going to give thanks more for the hardships we went through than for anything else. Whatever we gain in the way of faith, whatever growth we have, whatever our increase in understanding the plan and the purpose of God and His power is really going to be largely due to the hardships and the difficulties that we go through in life. So it's important for us to be aware of things like the background of that song and see a man who could have complained, uh, could have become angry at God, and all of us in the ministry see this happening over and over again. And instead, he chose to write a song, I believe, really led by the Spirit of God as he looked into the deep waters where his wife and daughters had gone down and wrote a song that has been a source of tremendous blessing to the souls of God's people for a long, long time. Well, we've been talking over our time together yesterday. We had three sessions yesterday on meditation. Meditation is almost an untouched topic among Christians. You find very, very little that is ever taught or very little that is ever written on the topic of meditation. And yet it's amazing because we find commands to meditate and references to meditation all through the Bible. As we saw in Psalm 19, let the thoughts of my heart and the meditations of my mind be acceptable in God's sight. We looked first at the importance of meditating on our Savior and our salvation in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 12, where we read, consider Jesus. And the word consider means to bear down with your mind. This is something that really needs to be mastered. From there, in our second session, we went to Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, where we're told to Reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. The word reckon is another one of those words for meditation. It means to add up the facts and draw the accurate and the appropriate conclusion. And so we talked about meditating on ourselves in light of the salvation that we have. From there, we went in our third session to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, where Paul gives a list of eight marvelous qualities and virtues of the plan and the purpose of God in our life. And he tells us that we are to meditate on these things. And we saw that it really stretches out across the context surrounding that verse to really understand what these things is talking about. We're going to see that again this morning. So if you have your Bible, and this is a Bible church, so if you don't, uh, shame on you. You should have your Bible. Open your Bible with us this morning. We're going to look at another area where the New Testament commands us to meditate in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and before we get into the text, let's just once again go before the throne of God's grace and ask that He will accomplish this morning what only He can do. We are helpless. The Lord Jesus made it very clear, without me you can do nothing. I recognize probably more than anyone that my time here is going to be completely wasted unless God the Holy Spirit steps in and makes something happen that is supernatural. 
and that is the instruction of the souls of God's people through the power of the Spirit as he wields the sword of truth in our souls. So let's pray together, and then we'll look at meditating on our gift and our ministry. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather ourselves together this morning, we are doing so in obedience to, to the command that we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. And the text says, so much the more as you see the day approaching. We recognize that the day of our Lord's return is drawing near. We don't know the time, we don't know the way, but Father, we have the promise that promise should stimulate us to realize that as our world increasingly careens out of control, we need to be more and more under the control of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So, Father, we've gathered together this morning anticipating that you have drawn us for a reason, expecting that God the Holy Spirit has a message for us, believing that we will leave this place better than when we came. Apart from transformed lives, uh, we really are accomplishing nothing at all. So go to work and do the surgery that you have planned for us this morning in our minds and in our souls as you take up the scalpel of truth and apply it to our hearts and let the Lord Jesus Christ receive the honor and the glory and the praise forever and ever. For We pray these things in his name. Amen. When we think about, I better get to my text here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> I just want to read you verses 14, 15, 16. We'll start with this as a kind of a foundation. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is given to you by prophecy with the laying on the hands of the eldership. Uh, this does not mean that Paul spoke into Timothy a gift that he wanted him to have, but rather that Paul was given the ability to identify the gift that God had given this young man, and that was confirmed as he was ordained. The laying on of hands, even to this day, uh, is a typical way of uh, the leadership, the elders gathering around a young man and committing him into the ministry. It indicates that there is an association in other words, we have a responsibility when we ordain young men, we have a responsibility to keep in contact with them, to uh, support them in prayer, to guide them as they develop their ministry and so forth. Verse 15, meditate on these things. There's the focal point of our text. Once again, we see the phrase we found in Philippians 4.8, these things. What things is he talking about? That's for us to develop. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Before we get into the development of the gift, let me just touch on that last little statement. If Timothy is a believer and Timothy is a minister of the Word of God, why in the world does he need to be saved? Well, it's very important for us to understand that salvation is not a one-shot thing. By that, what I mean, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of eternal life. When we speak of salvation, this is usually what we're talking about, and that 
gift of eternal life is secure forever. You did nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to lose it. Your sin nature is not reformed when you become a believer. You are capable of doing anything as a believer that you could do as an unbeliever if you choose to walk in the flesh. So your salvation is secure, not based on your performance, but based on the finished work of Christ at the cross. However, because we continue to have that sin nature and because it is just as depraved as ever, we need to be saved on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. We need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from the temptations of Satan. We need to be saved from the deception of this world. We need to be delivered on a daily basis. So what Paul is saying to young Timothy here is that if you take heed to yourself, in other words, going back to what we studied yesterday, am I abiding in Christ? Am I reckoning myself to be dead to sin and alive to God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Someone asked me yesterday about people who become believers and they have an area of weakness and temptation and they say, I just can't overcome it. That is false. Scripture tells us that there is no temptation overtaking you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. If I say I can't overcome this temptation, I am blaspheming the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. The problem is I won't overcome it. The resources are there in the indwelling Holy Spirit, in the Word of God, in surrounding ourselves with fellow believers who can keep us accountable and strengthen us and encourage us to overcome any area of sin in our life. So Paul is saying to young Timothy, take heed to yourself, that is your conduct, and we'll touch on this in just a moment, and to the doctrine. In other words, the strength comes to us through the teaching. As I illustrated yesterday, spiritual power is like epoxy. You have two components. One component is within you. The other component is on the outside. The Spirit of God indwells you from the moment of your salvation. The Word of God is outside of you, but neither one of them can work alone. They have to be put together. And so you mix the Word of God with faith. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and goes to work in your life. So if you pay heed to yourself and to the doctrine, Paul says to Timothy, you will deliver yourself. I have the opportunity to speak in a lot of uh, Bible schools, uh, seminaries, Bible institutes, and so forth, many places around the world. And I always tell the young guys going into the ministry, When you get into the ministry, Satan is going to walk right into your church. He is going to walk into your church and he is going to be prepared and equipped to destroy you. Now I said, you need to understand what he looks like when he walks into your church. He is going to come in the form of a young, attractive young lady who just loves your teaching just can't believe how wonderful a communicator you are and starts becoming close to you and identifying with you and so on and so forth. And I said, when that happens, don't blame her. She's just being manipulated by the enemy. You need to be alert enough to say this stops here. Because many, many men in the ministry have been pulled down by that very temptation. can come in other forms as well, but 
I've been in the ministry almost 50 years, and I have to tell you, uh, that is the number one uh, way that the enemy loves to attack young pastors. When Paul says to Timothy, meditate on these things, these things takes us back to the end of chapter 3. There's a foundation, there is a groundwork, if you will, that everything else is built on. We all understand this. The moment I say it, you know that it's true. Everything is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, we're told that other foundation no man can lay than that which God has laid, which is Christ Jesus. So it always begins with him. It always ends with him. He is the foundation of our life. So if you just look back to 1 Timothy 3.16, you'll notice the text that Paul says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, mysteries in the Bible are not a whodunit, and they're not, no one can figure it out. A mystery in the Bible is something that had not been previously revealed, but now is made known to us, and that is the coming of Jesus Christ in human flesh. God who is manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. There are some very important components for us to consider, reflect on, and meditate on. Meditation, as I said yesterday, is nothing more than us thinking about and dwelling on what we love. You can tell what you love by evaluating what do I spend most of my time thinking about. If I spend most of my time thinking about my new motorbike, or I think most of my time, uh, thinking time about uh, when work's done and I can go fishing, then that's what I really love. Humans naturally, even unbelievers, naturally meditate. That is, we reflect on, we chew on like a cow chewing on its cud and think over and over and over about the things that we love and the things that we desire. We have to develop that spiritual hunger Jesus spoke about in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are impoverished dwell on essentials for survival. They think about food, they think about drink, and they think about clothing. Isn't it interesting, Paul said, having food and clothing, let us be content. We need to dwell on the reality of the love of God manifested for us, demonstrated for us in the person of Christ. We will never plumb the depths of that mystery. That mystery is greater than our mind and soul has the ability to comprehend. But the more we dwell on it, the more we develop an appetite for it, the more we feed on the Word of God, the more we develop an appetite for the Word of God, and it becomes the thing that we delight in. Delight yourself in the Lord. It's the secret to a blessed life. You want the secret to a blessed life in one verse, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. We delight ourselves on the desires of our heart and we never get them because we have interdicted and interrupted the plan of God for our life. All things have a right place and a right time. All things are given to us freely and bountifully by God if we simply allow Him to have His rightful place in our life. So 
Delight yourself in, in the Lord. The word delight is a romantic word in the Hebrew language. It actually means fall in love with the Lord. So dwell on that mystery. Now, as Paul's talking to Timothy, we recognize Timothy is a pastor. The book of 1 Timothy is one of the three pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And so when we're in those books, we recognize that we're getting instruction for pastors. You may be sitting there saying, well, I'm not a pastor, and so this doesn't apply to me. Well, unfortunately, you may not be aware of the fact that whatever God requires of the pastor, he requires of you. With the exception of the gift. The pastoral gift is a gift of shepherding God's people. He doesn't expect that of you, but if you're a husband, he expects you to shepherd your wife and your children. If you're a grandfather, he expects you to play a shepherding role over children and grandchildren. If you're in a position of leadership in a school, for example, or anything else, there is a shepherding aspect. So all of the things that he is saying to Timothy apply to all of us as well. And the reason it's so important that the pastor be an example of the things that he teaches is because, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, children learn by observation and imitation. Isn't that amazing? Except you become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We can hear the truth taught. We can have the finest teaching in the world, but if we don't see it exhibited in a life, we really don't know how it works. There's a young lady that's a very brilliant young lady back in, uh, I'm not even sure where she's at now, but she comes to a lot of my conferences. And whenever we have a question and answer session, she always comes with a notebook full of questions. Sometimes in the sessions after the conference, we'll sit down and she'll say, okay, I got some questions. And I look, she's flipping through pages. I mean, she's, she's really serious. But one of the things she asked me over and over again that tells me that I know she's on target. She says, what does this look like in life? Okay, I understand the concept. I've got the teaching. What does this look like in life? We want that picture. We want that thing that we can observe, that we can see someone doing so that we can then imitate the actions that we're seeing. And that's actually a very important part of our learning. Meditate on your gift and your ministry. I'm not sure you're aware of this. Many of you will be. You say, I'm just a lowly believer. I'm not anyone important but you are also a minister. You have actually a threefold ministry. And I want to reveal that threefold ministry to you so that you will meditate on that ministry. If you will hold your place here, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, because in Hebrews chapter 10, we actually see these three areas brought forth very, very clearly. Hebrews chapter 10 is a magnificent passage. It's talking about how Christ did what the law could not do, how he became the reality of which the law was only a shadow, uh, how he offered himself uh, in Hebrews 10 and verse 12, he offered himself a sacrifice for sins forever and has sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14 says, by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. There's the difference between initial salvation and progressive 
sanctification. But all of this builds up to a challenge, and the challenge we find beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, that is to enter into the very presence of God as we pray and pour out our heart's desires to Him. He says in verse 20, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Remember that veil that was in the temple as Jesus hung on the cross and when he cried out, it is finished, that veil ripped from top to bottom, therefore declaring that the old covenant was finished, the way of animal sacrifice was over because it was fulfilled in Christ and the door into the very presence of God was open. And we have that access, we have that ability to come boldly into the throne room of grace, not just when we're doing well, but especially when we're struggling and when we're falling. Having a high priest forever over the house of God, now verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The phrase draw near is the word that is used for the priest approaching the altar to offer a sacrifice. This is your first ministry. The first ministry in your life is the ministry of prayer. God has opened the door to you and given you access so that you can approach the throne of His grace not only to represent yourself, not only to confess your sins when needed, but especially to intercede on behalf of other people. How well are you doing in your ministry of praying for people in need? That's a question that we should ask. How often do I pray for those who are suffering? When people come to me and express a need, and it's so easy for us to say, I'll pray for you, and we go our way and we never pray. What a terrible conviction it should be in our soul that a fellow believer who is struggling has come to us and expressed to us their need, and we have the power to go to the throne room of God and lift that person up before the throne of God, and we turn our back and we go our way because we're thinking of fishing or riding our motorbike or we're going camping this weekend or whatever it may be. It should be an indictment on our soul. There should be a conviction in us when we fail to pray. And I'll tell you a little lesson that I've learned. The best thing to do when someone comes to you and says, will you pray for my mother? Will you pray for my child? Will you pray for my friend? I say, you bet, let's pray right now. Just pray right then. Don't worry about who's watching. Don't worry about where you are. Don't worry about what's going on. Just stop right then and pray. And I'll let you in on a little secret. If you do that, you'll remember to pray again later. Amazing how that works. Every believer is a priest. So your first ministry, if you want to jot this down, is priesthood. Actually, you don't need to jot it down. I always do the work for you. It's right there in your notes. Priesthood. Every believer is a priest. And you have other references there that you can go to. The second ministry. Once we take care of the first priesthood, prayer ministry... He says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope brings us to the second ministry every believer has, and that is the ministry of an ambassador. We are a representative of God to the world. We are an ambassador of Christ to the world. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul talks about this ministry and he says, the love of Christ compels us. In other words, the love of Christ, not just His love for us, but the more we dwell on His love for us, the more it creates in us a love for Him. And that dual concept of the love of Christ motivates us and compels us to go out into the world and to share the gospel with other people. Why does the love of Christ compel us? 2 Corinthians 5.15 He died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again. So we are contemplating the greatness of the love of Christ for us and what it's done for us, and it compels us and moves us to go out. He died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. That's the key but for him who loved us and gave himself. So you are a priest and you are going to give an account for your priesthood. I'm telling you right now and allow me to add, time's running out. Time's running out. If you've never heard this before, I would encourage you to jump on it like a chicken on a June bug and bear down on it with your mind because time is running out. To stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and be asked the question, how have you fulfilled your priesthood? Oh, I never heard that I had one. Shame on pastors for not teaching that. You are a believer priest. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9. You're a royal priesthood, something that never existed before. King priests. I want to be able to give an account and say, Father, I lifted... My unbelieving friends before you, I prayed for them. I pray for people that I'll, I'll never meet, people I don't even know. I pray for politicians. They need our prayers more than just about anyone. To be humbled and to be brought to realize their need for salvation by grace through faith. And then to be a witness to the world, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that we should be ready to give an answer of a reason of the hope that is in us to everyone who asks. I've noticed an interesting fact about life. People don't ask about something they can't see. If people see no hope in you, they're not going to ask you a reason for the hope that's in you. It is easy in the world today for us to become grumblers and complainers. And we complain about this or we blame something else for why we're not cheerful and joyful. I was just telling Jared, I met a guy on the street in Anchorage, Alaska. I had, I had uh, gone to a place and I, I walked out and I was walking down the street and I looked over and here's a guy standing in front of a bar with a big grin on his face and he's watching me. I mean, it was almost like, you know, what is this guy, a stalker or what? Why is he watching me? And, and I look at him, and he keeps watching me. And I'm walking down the street, and he keeps watching me. And my natural tendency when things like that happen, I just start walking toward him. You know, why are you interested? What's, what's the focus here? And as I walked toward him, I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm too blessed to be depressed. I'm too anointed to be disappointed. I said, you must know the man. He said, I know the man. I said, hallelujah, brother, and I gave him a big handshake. My friend Fassel, the pastor from Pakistan, was there with me. He was waiting in the car down the street. And I, I said to the guy, I said, you need to meet a friend of mine. He's a pastor in Pakistan. He said, let's go. We went down the street. Fassel gets out of the car. I said, this is my friend Fassel. He's a pastor in Pakistan. 
This guy was a pretty big, stout boy. He grabbed both of us by the neck and just pulled us in and just started praying a loud prayer. People walking on the street looking at us like, what in the world is going on here? He got done with his prayer. I said, who are you? What's your name? He said, chili dog. <laughs> okay. I said, why chili dog? He said, when I was in the military, I did some awful things and I was a very angry man. He said, they called me mad dog. He said, I got out of the military and I met Jesus Christ and he cooled me out and chilled me out. So now I'm chili dog. <laughs> it's the only name I've ever known him by. I've never seen him again. But I keep praying for him because the reason he was standing outside that bar was he was offering Jesus Christ to every man that walked out of that bar. Guy had a, a street ministry of some kind. He was out there doing what he could do. You remember the story how Mary came and anointed Jesus before his burial? The disciples began to attack her for wasting that costly ointment. Do you remember what Jesus said? I love this phrase. It just comforts me so much. He rebuked him and he said, she has done what she could. She did what she could. There are a lot of things we can't do. Let's do what we can. Let's be a faithful priest in our prayer life. Let's be a faithful witness as an ambassador. And then as we get down to verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That little word to stir up, very interesting word. It speaks of friction. It speaks of sparks and heat. We get our word paroxysm from the Greek word there. Stir up love and good deeds. We should be a burr under the saddle of fellow believers. I know some of you are experts at that. You may be overdoing it, but better that than nothing. We should be a, a, a goad that is prodding fellow believers. How are you doing? I used to have a friend that used to come up to me and after I had seen him for a while, his first question to me was, how's your spiritual life? Not how you doing, what have you been doing lately, how is your spiritual life? And it always just kind of set me back because I think, how is it really? What is the honest answer to that question? We need to meditate. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. By the way, he ends this section by saying, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. And so... All of these ministries, our priesthood, our ambassadorship, and our ministry of spiritual gift, all of these things function within the local church and go out from the local church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you'll join me there real quick, time's fleeting. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. It's a tragedy that many believers are ignorant on the topic of spiritual gifts. We all have spiritual gifts. We need to operate in our spiritual gift. I'll get to that in a moment. That thought that just flitted through. If you drop down, Paul talks about Verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministry, 
but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities. This is amazing because you can have two men gifted with the gift of pastor teacher. Their ministry is not going to be the same and the activities or the effects of it are going to be different. Same gift, different ministry, completely different effects and results. And that's one reason, by the way, why we should never judge someone else's gift or ministry by our own. They're a different person. They have a different place in the harvest field. They've got something unique that God wants them to accomplish. Thank God for anybody that's out there working. You may look at someone that's out there and they're pouring their heart and soul into something and you don't think that's what they ought to be doing. Thank God they're out there doing something. They're at work in the field of the Lord. Bless them. Encourage them. By the way, a thought comes to me. You know, as we came here last year and you were in the middle of building your building next door and we come this year and the building's done and I know you've got plans for things down the road, which is good, and you should. And Jared didn't prod me to say this and probably won't be happy that I did. Never forget as a congregation, your first mission is your pastor and his family. Don't get so caught up in bigger and better things that you forget your first mission is to the pastor and his family. You take care of them and take care of them well. And you will be blessed as a result of it. Notice verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit, that is the outward evidence, the outworking, if you will, the effective working of the Spirit is given to each one. If you are here as a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have a spiritual gift. God the Holy Spirit bestowed that gift on you at the moment of your salvation. Notice if you drop down into verse 18, God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as He pleased. You don't get to ask for your gift. If you did, I wouldn't be here this morning. The day I received Christ as my Savior, I thank God for saving me through the sacrifice of Christ. And I said, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. All I ask is two things. Don't take me to China and don't make me a pastor. I've done both. We don't get to choose. And I often think, particularly in the ministry, he chooses the men that are the weakest. He chooses the ones who in and of themselves have the least to offer. And why is that? Because he wants the power to be of him and not of us. And we learn to depend and rely on him. Someone asked me, how can I identify my spiritual gift? It's very simple. Start serving. Just start serving. Get into the local church, get involved in the local church and ask, what can I do? Church needs cleaned. It's always amazed me. No one has the gift of church cleaning. <laughs> clean the church. No one wants to clean the toilets. Get involved. Start serving. And as you start serving, I always liken it to a guy that gets a job and he starts working. Our oldest son did this. 
started working in a huge facility in the warehouse, and he's working in the warehouse, and then they find out that there's a, a, a need for a guy at a higher level, and they found out he could do it. He rises to that level. Pretty soon they find out there's a need in the main office. He has the skills that meet that need. Pretty soon he's up there in the main office. He rose so high they couldn't contain him, and he had to leave the company so he could keep moving on. You will rise to the level of your spiritual gift, and as you serve, God will work in and through you to identify what that gift is. All gifts fall into one of two categories. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, it tells us that gifts fall into the category of either speaking or serving. Is your gift a speaking gift? Maybe it's evangelism. Maybe it's Bible teaching. Maybe it's teaching the little children. Maybe it's the pastoral ministry. It could, be, it could be on the mission field. A communication gift. But if that's not the gift, then it's going to fall into the serving gift. And there are a multitude of opportunities where that may come into line. I encourage you to meditate on your gift and your ministry. Paul urges Timothy, and, and you'll notice this under point four in your notes, there are really five things Paul touches on in the context. He should consider his public example in verse 12. He should consider his teaching ministry in verse 13. He should meditate on the development and effectiveness of his gift in verse 14, his visible progress in faith and conduct in verse 15, and to the pursuit of the harmony and the meeting together of his life and his teaching in verse 16. These are areas that Paul emphasizes. We could spend a lot of time on it, but I want to finish in the last few moments that we have here with a way that is foolproof to find your gift. The five daily disciplines of the Christian life. I came on this as I was teaching, when you go into remote areas of the world, you find yourself in the uh, back areas of Africa or Asia or India, wherever you may be, you have, to, you have to tailor the message to things they understand. You have to observe their life, see how they live, watch what they do, see the tools that they use, see the way that they work their fields, so on and so forth. Watch how the women prepare the meals. And as you observe these things, you begin to find illustrations for biblical truth. And I was watching one time, and I said, how do these people live their lives? And I find that there are five things that they do on a daily basis. And we do these five things for our body, but we should also learn to do these five things for our soul. And they're in your notes there. They're the five disciplines, daily disciplines of the Christian life. But I noticed in village settings, people generally will wake up and the first thing they'll do is wash. And we tend to think of the primitive people of the world, what we would call primitive, uh, as being unwashed, unclean people. Many of them are much more clean than we are. They wash. They, and it's not easy. They don't turn on a tap. They walk to the river. They may walk to the well. I changed a whole culture in Zambia 
because the women would wake up at four o'clock and walk downhill a quarter of a mile to the well and draw the water and bring it back up and heat the water and pour the water out for the men to wash. So I just started getting up, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, grabbing two buckets and going down the hill. You should have seen it. It was almost like I had committed a crime. You can't do this. The women tried to stop me. You can't do this. This is women's work. I said, you know what? I like to wash. I like to have food cooked. It takes water to do all of that. I can draw water. So I finally overcame the protest of the women. Well, then you should have seen the men. Oh, you can't do this. This is, this is against our culture. You know, they're all sleeping in while the women are carrying water. And I go down the hill with a couple of buckets and come back and guys are trying to stop me. This is contrary to our culture. I said, your culture's wrong. Well, lo and behold, before we left, I started going to the well there at daybreak see another guy with his wife. He says, I'm drawing water too. Another guy comes with his wife. I'm helping my wife get water. I said, you guys keep at it because you'll change your whole culture. Washing. Every day you need to wash. Confess your sins. Go before the Lord, examine yourself, and acknowledge the things where you have failed, and receive the cleansing the second thing they do is eat. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Feed on the word of God. After they wash and after they eat, they walk. They go to the field or wherever they're working. And so 1 John 1, 7 tells us if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We need to learn to walk in the light daily. Galatians 5, 16, by the way, that reference you have Galatians 5.15 should be 5.16. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Back to the question of I can't overcome things. It's because you're not walking in the Spirit. Scripture tells us walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. After they walk to the field, they go to work. And so we're supposed to work. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. There is work every single day for you and I to do. Let's go to work in the plan of God. And then finally, they come in at the end of the day and they lay their head down and they rest. And Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the rest of salvation, but it doesn't stop there. Take my yoke on you and learn from me and you will find rest. That's a different rest. That is the rest that comes to a soul at peace with the plan and the purpose of God for their life. Living by faith, living in the peace of God that surpasses human understanding, laying our head down on that pillow of the grace of God at the end of every day, knowing He has been faithful and I have taken advantage of that faithfulness. I want to encourage you, meditate on your gift, meditate on your ministry, think on it, and fulfill it to the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, we'll pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. It is so powerful, so clear. It, it, it just sets before us a path that we, we, that we have to, all of us here this morning, we have to make a choice. Am I going to follow that path, or am I going to continue to go my own way? 
May the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and the transforming power of your word lead each of us to draw a little bit more near to the purpose that you have for our life. We are uniquely gifted. We are supernaturally empowered. Let us not live as common people. Let us live as the heroes of faith that you have called us to be, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks.